Hi everybody, I'm Katie. And I'm Rhiannon. And welcome to Haunting Cases. to start it just uh, <laughs> into the microphone i feel like this is just gonna be how we like start every single episode it's just gonna be or awkward <laughs> silence <laughs> this oh, is just God. how we operate as human beings <laughs> this is exactly how we operate as human oh, beings God. gotta make sure that everything's cycling correctly in the brain gotta have that yep. coffee in yep. gotta get uh, the coffee going and then gotta process that Yep. <laughs> I'm like, you were talking earlier about your allergies, and right now my nose is like, I can join the party. <laughs> Sorry, it's like say? Allergies. Out. <laughs> allergies. Oh, I man. can do that. Watch. Yep. <laughs> oh, God. Yep, that's how it goes. <laughs> oh, right. man. Well, how are you well, doing today? <laughs> I'm doing pretty good as as you said the the allergies are running a little bit but besides that doing a little good a little hyped up on the coffee here we're gonna try to tone that down a notch but ready to go <laughs> i'm like i'm on my second cup and i'm like i know there's only like half a cup left in my little like pour over station so i'm like i'm gonna beeline for that as soon as i'm done with this episode I'm like, make more coffee and then come back <laughs> All the coffee. I need yes. more. My anxiety isn't going fast enough. <laughs> my my pace of life is not fast enough yet. We need more caffeine. I need to go light speed. I need to go super fast. <laughs> Sonic fast. Right. Oh my god. Oh god. Oh seriously, yes, yes. <sighs> All right. Well, welcome again to haunting cases. Uh, thank you so much for joining us for our second episode. We are super duper excited to continue on this journey. Thank you again for joining us, and please do spread the word. We are so excited to have more people join us. <laughs> Speaking of more people, it's absolutely crazy. We already got 25 followers on the Facebook page. We haven't even dropped an episode yet, guys. <laughs> Woohoo! Yes! The, we are so recording before <laughs> the first episode has dropped, or the trailer! So thank you so much to our first 25 followers, and thank you as well to any of you who are going to follow us today! <laughs> oh god, you cut out there for a second. Super excited. <laughs> oh, so just as like a disclaimer, both of our internets, because once again, everybody's home because of the Rona. Yep. I'm like, the our internet, the, the Rona and the snow, I'm like, it kind of pops in and out a little bit more than usual, so like, she'll freeze it sometimes, or I'll freeze it sometimes, and we always freeze in kind of like an awkward position, and I'm just like, <laughs> what's going on over there, or like, she'll cut out, and it's like, and I'm like, what? <laughs> what did you just say? <laughs> Are you alright? <laughs> uh, I can feel it already, there's going to be... A heck of a lot more editing with this one. 
oh yeah, our oh, internet's yeah. gonna make it a fun time today. They're like, you want a challenge? Well, I'll give you a fucking challenge. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh shit. Oh man. <sighs> All right. Ooh. Sorry, my like screen just like rotated on me on my tablet. Is there a way for me to lock that so it doesn't like go like open Gangnam style on my ass when I'm like reading? Oh, there it is. Oh. Yeah, portrait. <laughs> I figured it out. <laughs> All right. So just as a quick reminder before we get started, uh, disclaimer on my side, these are real people. They have real families that are still involved in suffering with some of these cases. This is not meant to be a emotional harm to anyone whatsoever that's involved. And I do ask that you are respectful and do not contact the families or those that are involved. <sighs> I think I got that like staged out correctly this time. I'm like, it sounded a little messy last time, but I wrote it down this time. I'm just right there. <laughs> I got a sentence to follow. Woo! Script. We need a script sometimes. <laughs> Only sometimes. Only sometimes. <laughs> Only sometimes. We don't want the whole thing scripted. That, no. That's no fun. But yeah, some, sometimes it's nice to have a little bit of a guide. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just like, how do I say this? <laughs> We're gonna write this down as best as I can. <laughs> uh... All right. All right. What do you got for us today, Katie? I have quite the case for us today, and my procrastination <laughs> wanted me to do it all in one night last night. I'm the like, best I, way to do it. <laughs> I had all the research done ahead of time. I just had not written anything down for myself until last night at like 10 p.m. And I looked at the clock. I'm like, oh no. And I'm looking at the research. I'm like, oh no. And it's just. I'm like, I'm not going to bed until like 4 a.m. I'm like, this is exactly like college. I'm back in college. <laughs> back in college again. <laughs> but anyway. back of those college times. Prior to giving you any information about the episode, I think that it's very important to put in some definitions to like words that we're going to be using in this and like some phrases. Um... They might clear up confusion and it helps kind of to understand the process of the whole case. So the first one is a coroner and they are an elected or appointed individual who is responsible for determining the manner of death in persons of their jurisdiction. The next one is a medical examiner and they are an appointed individual who is licensed and board certified in forensic pathology. They perform autopsies and rule on manners of cause of death and manner of death. Um, in this story, they're kind of used interchangeably, which I personally can feel all of my forensic teachers just looking down on me like, what? Because they are not the same thing. <laughs> um, so... Apologies ahead of time to any of my forensic professors that might be listening to the podcast. I, I am sincerely <laughs> sorry because I wasn't sure where like they fit in really because this is an older case. So they might be a little bit more interchangeably used. Um, but just as a disclaimer, they are not the same thing. <laughs> um, so the manner of death is a fashion in which death comes into being. There are five classifications that death can fall under. They are homicide, suicide, accidental, 
natural or undetermined. And then cause of death is the disease or injury that indicates the sequence of events that relate to the death or the manner of death. So for example, like if you have a homicide being your manner of death, the tool or weapon per se, like a gunshot wound is what caused the death, but the manner of death is ruled homicide. Um, not to say that all gunshot wounds are homicide. <laughs> Don't take it that way. It's just an example of how that kind of works. Um, a doe is a designation for a person who is unknown. They are typically um, named John Doe or Jane Doe for the males and the females. And this can change depending on the situation of the case, which we'll see in this one. Another term is forensic odontology, which I changed from forensic dentistry because it's a, the exact same thing, it's just a fancier word. Um, it is the use of dentistry in the court of law, and it includes the use of antemortem and postmortem dental comparisons to establish identity and analysis of bite marks. In older cases like that of Ted Bundy, Dentistry is used as a comparative practice to bite marks left on some of his victims. However, nowadays, this type of practice isn't as widely used as it can produce a lot of false convictions due to uh -huh. a wide arrangement of variables that come from bite marks. So a good example of that one would be, I believe, Rodney Ray in Arizona. He was convicted on bite mark analysis. Wow. And it wasn't his bite mark, and he was completely innocent. And oh we can God. get more into that down the road in the future with the Innocence Project. For now, well, it's just good to know that those types of things do exist and that it is a very wide variability that sometimes people get a false conviction off of very minute evidence and variabilities. Wow. Um, however, forensic odontology is still used to help identify missing and unknown persons through comparison of dental records to a deceased individual. And then we have NamUs, which is an organization in the United States. It is the National Missing and Unidentified Person System. It provides technology, forensic services, and investigative support to resolve missing and unidentified cases in the United States. Then there's the DNA Doe Project, and it is a American nonprofit volunteer organization formed to identify unidentified persons through the use of forensic genealogy. And then there's forensic genealogy. <sighs> Vocab lessons with Katie. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, forensic genealogy is a newer DNA technique that involves using genealogical databases to help identify individuals. This is really new DNA like profiling. The most notable case and groundbreaking one that really brought forensic genealogy to headlines was that of Joseph D'Angelo, the Golden State Killer, who was caught in 2018 with the help of forensic genealogy. Nice. So, <laughs> now that the vocab's over, Woo. <laughs> I hope no. I got everything. If there's still questions, feel free to email me. I can clear it up in the next episode or so on and so forth and answer anything, basically. I do appreciate well. the vocab for me as well, since I don't have a current 
justice background. Just throw that out there. I also need the vocab. <laughs> you're, you're welcome. You're welcome. Like, when I originally was going to school for this, I'm like, this is so much. And then, like, today I'm like, I know that. I'm like, <laughs> let me go grab it. Uh, I'm also trying to remind myself to drink more water, like, while I'm recording, because last episode, I kept getting, like, really dry. I'm like, <laughs> I'm, like, breathing into the mic because my tongue is absolutely just barren. I'm like, oh, it's so dry. <laughs> yeah, I'll probably take a quick water break uh, between our, our two sections. Stay yeah. hydrated, folks. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> drink your water. Take care of yourself. My coffee is dehydrating, and I'm I'm slowly remembering that right now. <laughs> so my case that I bring to you today is the Sumter County dose. Now, just as a disclaimer ahead of time, I tried to piece this together as best as I could last night because a lot of the information was scattered throughout multiple resources, so it was very messy in a sense. And then other resources that did have all the information, like, didn't seem quite viable. I did take some of their information, however, it didn't seem like it was well put together in a sense of, like, actual, like, newsworthy research. It was more, like, story-based. Which is cool for the person that did that, but I just want to make sure that, like, everybody knows this is kind of where this is going. Like, I tried to put it together to the best of my ability and where I believe that certain things fit properly. On the morning of August 9th, 1976, a truck driver by the name of Martin Durant was traveling along a dirt road between 195 and US 341 near the Florence County line about 25 miles east of Sumter, South Carolina when he discovered the bodies of a young couple laying on the shoulder of the dirt road. Durant properly managed to contact an employee, Charles Graham, at a nearby store who in turn called the authorities. Both victims were described as white and in their early 20s. Sorry, I like just hit like scroll panel on my Google Doc and it went flying. I'm like, oh. <laughs> there it goes. <laughs> the two had been shot to death with each sustaining a total of three gunshot wounds, one to the chest, back, and head. The Sumter County Coroner, Robbie Baker, determined that the shots to the head proved to be fatal and that they were both shot with the same gun. However, both victims were still left in a recognizable state, meaning that the bodies hadn't been there very long, as the longer that something sits out, the more decomposition rate picks up. So, starting with the male victim, uh, he was first believed to be between the ages of 18 to his early 20s, but a forensic odontologist who later examined his dental records suggested that he might be older than 27. However, looked younger due to his clothing and athletic build. His age range was updated from 18 to 30 years old after his case was entered into the NamUs database. He was around the height of six foot tall and approximately 150 pounds, with shoulder length brown hair and brown eyes with a pale olive complexion. He also had three scars, 
a set of two two-inch scars on his right shoulder area and a four-inch appendectomy scar. He was found wearing a pair of faded Levi brand jeans, a red t-shirt, and sandals. The red shirt read Coors America's Light Beer on the front and Camel Charger GT Sebring 75 on the back along with a Snoopy design. The shirt was apparently a promotional item from the Sebring races held in Sebring, Florida in 1975, which were sponsored by Coors Brewing Company. He was also found to have a pack of Grant's truck stop matches in his pocket, where they originated from, investigators believe, was a Grant's truck stop in the Midwest. He wore a yellow Bulba Accutron wristwatch. I'm so happy I got that on the first try. With a Twistoflex band bearing a serial number. Using the serial number, investigators were able to determine the watch was made in 1968. However, it was found that the Bulba company had downsized in the early 70s resulting in the destruction of many of their records, meaning there was no way to be certain where the victim's watch was distributed or bought from. The male also wore a 14 karat gold ring set with a gray star sapphire stone in the center. However, some other articles list the gem as being a tiger's eye, with the initials JPF engraved inside the ring. These items, along with his dental work, and clean presentation presumed that the individual had come from an affluent family. The female victim was slightly younger than the male and was originally believed to be between the ages of 18 to 20 years old. After her case was entered into NamUs, it was increased from 18 to 25 years of age. She was five foot five inches tall and weighed between 100 and 105 pounds had a slim build and olive complexion similar to that of her male counterpart, which led investigators to speculate that they might have been siblings. She had medium-length red-brown hair and bluish-gray eyes. She also had two distinctive moles on the left side of her face near her mouth. She had fillings in all of her back teeth, and her front teeth would have appeared straight if she were to smile. She had no surgical scars, had never been pregnant, and her legs were not shaved. She was found wearing a white blouse, cut off jeans, and sandals. She wore three distinctive rings. The first was a black oblong stone that appeared to have small turquoise chips embedded in it. The second had been an ornate scrolling feather shape with coral and turquoise stones to accompany the design. The third was a simple metal band with red, white, and blue stones. These rings appear to be authentically handmade Native American or Mexican jewelry and were all made out of sterling silver. It was presumed that they originated in the southwest region of the United States. The coroner later noted that both victims were very well clean and well groomed. Um, however, the two did not carry identification cards on their person when investigated further, leading the two to become does. When conducting interviews with possible witnesses around the area, there was a testimony of a witness who had heard a car driving down a dirt road where the bodies had been found. 
The witness said that he had heard gunshots, then a car quickly drive back onto the highway. The investigators came to believe that the presentation of both the victims, the couple may have been well-to-do or from another country, and investigators theorized that the couple may have been hitchhiking across the United States or victims of a carjacking due to the southwestern items found on their persons. An autopsy of the two revealed that there were no drugs or sign of alcohol found in their systems, and neither of them were wearing underwear at the time, and they did not have any money. It was also discovered that they had eaten fruit or ice cream earlier, which prompted a witness to report seeing them at a local fruit stand earlier that day. Additionally, the initials JPF engraved inside the John Doe's ring caused investigators to theorize that the man's name started with the letter J, to which months after the couple's death, an employee at a Santee, South Carolina campground claimed that he had met the two weeks prior to their death and they had become friends, stating that the man's name was either Jock or Jacques, and that the two were making their way to Florida. The John Doe was the son of a doctor in Canada, and the couple were on vacation, according to this witness's testimony. This prompted investigators and observers alike to rename the male victim to Jacques Doe rather than the traditional John Doe. Following the couple's murders, their depictions were sent across the country, as well as their fingerprints, to the Federal Bureau of Investigations and other law enforcement agencies. Several possible identities were suggested, however, they were all ruled out. The couple's bodies were kept at a local funeral home in caskets with airtight see-through lids in hopes that someone could or would identify them and people from all over the country inquired about the two, including several parents of young runaways. However, with no leads or possible identification of the two or their killer, on August 14th of 1977, one year and five days after the bodies were found, the couple were buried in donated plots at the Bethel United Methodist Church Cemetery in Oswego. I think that's how it's pronounced. That's how the pronunciation thing said on Google. I'm sorry if it's wrong. <laughs> um, with their graves marked as male unknown and female unknown. In June of 2007, the couple were exhumed for DNA testing, which confirmed that they were not biologically related and allowed investigators to theorize that the two were in a relationship. Volunteer Matthew McDaniel worked on the case for several years several years following this DNA extraction and suggested to investigators to contact the DNA Doe Project. In July of 2019, the DNA Doe Project was recruited in assistance to identify Jacques and Jane Doe. A total of $2,300 was donated to fund the extraction of useful DNA profiles from bone marrow for forensic genealogical research. And on October 12th of 2020, the results were released for the victim's ancestral background. In the following year, and after a 44-year-long mystery, the DNA Doe Project and the Sumter County Sheriff's Office announced that they had successfully aided with the identification of the couple as a pair of American hitchhikers. The Jane Doe was identified as Pamela Buckley, age 24 years old, and the Jacques Doe was identified as James Paul Friend, 
age 25 on January 21st, 2021 at a press conference. Friend was last seen on December 25th of 1975 in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And Buckley was last seen in Colorado Springs, Colorado, December of 1975. Both were reported missing in 1975 and likely met while hitchhiking. Now, there are several prevailing theories regarding the homicides based on a compilation of various interviews and internet resources. These are theories and should not be treated as factual accounts. Um, I'm only going to name a few just because a lot of the ones that I saw in one of the links that will be put in the show notes had some very kind of outlandish ideas to them. Where it was just, it didn't seem quite logical or factual in a sense. So we're just going to go with the ones that seem to like fit the category best, in my opinion. After all, like you said in a previous episode, like, believe what you feel is right with you. As this is still an open case, but do be respectful. So the first and most common theory is that the couple were involved in drug smuggling or some sort of organized crime. The type of death the two-faced was theorized to be an execution-style murder, which was synonymous with a mafia-styled hit, suggesting they were targeted for some reason. It wasn't until several years after their deaths that it was discovered that the drug smuggling was running rampant amongst the ranks of IMSA racing, which, if you remember correctly, Friend's shirt was an ISM racing shirt from 1975 Florida Sebring Race. The second one is that some speculate that the notable serial killer, Henry Lee Lucas, could have been involved with the murders. Lucas had told investigators that he was in South Carolina the day the two victims had died. However, due to previous outlandish claims and uh, lead false confessions of Henry Lee Lucas there was a heavy response with skepticism by investigators. Lucas had confessed to the two murder uh, to two murders that also occurred in Sumter County, an elderly woman in 1975 and a young man in 1983. However, Lucas died in 2001 due to heart failure and was never charged with the crime. The third and most predominant theory and lead in the case to investigators was in 1977, a man named Lonnie George Henry was arrested in Atlanta, South Carolina for driving under the influence. Upon searching the vehicle, officers were able to find a revolver matching the description of the murder weapon of the couple with its serial number filed away. After being test-fired by investigators, it was found to be the actual murder weapon. In response to this new find, Henry took a polygraph, which resulted in indication that he did not kill the couple, but he was deceptive about where he had gotten the gun. A relative had admitted to giving Henry the 357 Smith and Wesson for a birthday present and that all the serial numbers were on the gun when it was given. Henry later admitted that he had filed off the serial numbers himself. However, due to insufficient evidence, charges could not be filed against Henry for the murder of the two individuals 
and he passed in 1982 without giving any more information to investigators. Unfortunately, this case remains open to this day. However, with the identification of the remains, Sumter County Sheriff Anthony Dennis remains hopeful and plans to delve back into the investigation, stating that we do have persons of interest and that we are definitely going to reopen this case and we want to find out who actually committed these crimes. Like the previous case, I do believe it's important to talk about some statistics with missing and unidentified persons. In the United States alone, there are over 600,000 individuals that go missing every year. Of that number, 10,000 individuals will remain missing and become cold cases in their jurisdictions. In the United States, it is estimated that 4,400 unidentified bodies are recovered each year, with approximately 1,000 of those bodies remaining unidentified after one year. And I bring up the missing persons side of things just because they do really go together. It's unfortunate, but most people have a linkage blindness with their legal systems. So when you have somebody that goes missing in one jurisdiction, let's say, per se, for this case, an instance, they both were reported missing in 1975. Buckley was reported missing in Colorado, and I believe Friend was reported missing in Lancaster. Those are two different states from South Carolina. And... There's that failure to communicate across the board with investigators for missing persons versus unidentified persons. So it leaves them remaining missing for longer than presumably they need to be. And that happens a lot with cases. So is there not a national database nowadays that like that information can be plugged into? And then like you said, Someone goes missing in Colorado, somebody goes missing in Pennsylvania, and now you have a case in North Carolina with two unidentified bodies, and they can pull up that information from the other states. So from my own research with doing missing persons, because I did a huge thesis on this for my last two years of school, um, there isn't a database like that. The closest you can get is like NamUs, kind of, or CODIS actually takes in unknown forensic DNAs and missing persons, but it's not necessarily a plug and play system like mm-hmm. you see on TV where you put in a DNA, like it might spit out something that's kind of similar in DNA matching. However, you still got to go back and you got to do the hard handwork to make sure that everything is 100% accurate. Yeah. It's like that a lot. That's why when their fingerprints were sent out, you probably didn't see a lot that came back because you still have to go through and you have to do comparative against fingerprints that are already in the system. So, as far as I know, as of today, I I do not think there is a database out there solely driven towards missing and unidentified, and that was actually one of my solutions in my thesis, that that needs to happen. Yeah, I would, I mean, I'm not, I don't have a criminal justice background by any means, but uh, from what I know, that seems like something that would really help, because... I, I mean, mm-hmm. if I'm going to be a, a murderer, I would imagine I would probably, you know, want <laughs> your face. 
I'm speaking hypothetically here. If if you're trying to get away with something, like I don't think it would be a bad idea to go across state lines, you know, if you're trying to get away with something, mm-hmm. especially if you know that states aren't communicating about this stuff. Or if you just have like an instance like this where you said there's a possibility of hitchhiking or or uh, interstate travel. I mean, if somebody gets taken out on a vacation or something, I mean, that, that shouldn't be a huge barrier, hopefully, in and solving the case if there's proper resources. So I really think a, a database like that could really help, or at least I imagine so. Yeah, and additionally, even adding on to that, like when we see people that go missing or you have unidentified persons, like a lot of the time, there's a lot of different ways that this can go down. Um, sometimes law enforcement agencies don't take a case seriously. There's the myth of the 24-hour wait period before you can report a missing person. That is a myth. You can report them as soon as you feel they are in danger and missing. I didn't know that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, push it with your your law enforcement agency. If somebody goes missing and they're like, oh, well, you got to wait 24 hours. No. If you feel something (laughs) is wrong, push it because the most critical time in a case is the first 48 hours. You feel something is wrong with your gut, you push it. Um, A lot of cases like this, like, and we'll even bring in more definitions here. And honestly, this is just coming off my brain from doing my research. So I I don't, I'll I'll cite myself, maybe. I don't know how to cite this. Um, uh, So when it comes down to, like, we have missing persons, there's a couple different things that can go on. Sometimes people choose to go missing, which is completely legal in the United States. Um, that can result in some mental issues, too, where people decide to commit suicide or they might even decide to start a new life. Um, then there's cases where these people are seen as less dead, and that's a term used for people that are more likely to go missing based on their high risk and i say with like dr evil quotations high risk lifestyle um so their disappearances seem to be as though they never were um those types of people are typically like sex workers and children and unfortunately elderly people or people that are hitchhiking people that are runaways And even during this time period in the 1970s, we had that huge spike of serial killers. Like, if I remember correctly, like, I mentioned Henry Lee Lucas. He was active in the area at the time. Granted, Henry Lee Lucas is known as the confession killer. Um, If you guys haven't watched that documentary, please go look at it. And I will probably cover him in a later episode rather than going down that rabbit hole (laughs) right now. (laughs) But there's a lot of things that can go wrong. And there's a lot of areas where it's like, oh, this could have happened. This could have happened. And being a person that thought, like, I had a missing relative. We found her. Thank God she's safe. As she can be. She's not in a good mental state, obviously. But she's safe. Um, There's a lot of different ways that things can happen. You can have serial killers that pick up people murder them, kind of like Henry Lee Lucas, uh, Sam Little, um, Israel Keys, although he wasn't predominant in that time period. And basically murder a victim in one place and then 
drop them at a secondary location and produce two separate crime scenes, which might not even like fully be linked together until later in time. And then you have like instances of sex trafficking and human trafficking where people just up and disappear without a trace per se. And when a sex trafficker might be done with the victim, they might dump them in a secondary location, which might not even be in the same state that they originally disappeared from. Sounds like a whole host of issues that can go wrong it's, when trying to solve these cases. It's it's crazy. Like this is probably one of the biggest reasons I wanted to work with missing and unidentified mm-hmm. persons, and I still do to this day. And I feel that it's important to talk about these cases. Yeah, definitely. Because there's some that do not get the same like media coverage or the same spotlight time as others, such as like. For example, the Gabby Petito case that just recently came out, and then you have others that have been missing for much longer around the same age, but are being left out of the media due to racial factors, sexual factors, and an array of other things. And it's not fair to their cases. Yeah, that's one thing that I think is really disheartening and unfortunate is knowing that a lot of the cases that don't make it to the media like you said are due to racial factors or sexual factors or different things of that nature and those kinds of characteristics about somebody's identity shouldn't prevent their case from getting less notice taken of it than somebody more affluent or somebody of a particular race it's just not right and it's terrible that these things happen but they do and that's just it's so sad to me that these things do happen and so that's another reason why i I definitely agree that these things need to be talked about they need to be brought up because they just aren't always given as much notice as they really should be yeah and even going further down that road like me and you have talked about like when we get to a point that we're able to do listener episodes Mm -hmm. even putting in some of those cases that don't get the same media coverage as others at the end of episodes to just get the name out there and be like hey if you know anything say something do something because there has to be somebody that knows something yeah that's definitely something we're planning on doing in the future listeners is we're going to try to do just a quick snippet of a missing person case that is actively going on and being uh, pursued by law enforcement. That way, hopefully, we can get the word out that if by chance anyone knows anything, it can help them solve the case that much sooner, since I definitely feel like it seems like a lot of time the people who know things often are, you know, the people who work at the gas stations or work at the campsites or or things like that where if you, especially in a case where um, if the body is decomposed or like this where you only had so much to go off of, which I'm sure a lot of cases are like that, you may not know all the places that person went to, especially if you can't identify them. Um, and you may not know who to ask for information or who to go to. And so I think it's really important to get, again, get the word out, get that information out so that the people who have information can come to the table and give law enforcement that information so that hopefully these cases can get solved and families can be notified and everything can be taken care of as best as they can yeah and like even when i was going through these cases which it's great to see like these cases getting solved and their identities coming back granted this one still remains a cold case however when i went to go 
click the link to their NamUs profile, it's no longer there, and it just says solved on the page. I'm like, ah! yes! oh my god, it is the it is the greatest thing to see when you see the words either identified or solved, and even like on their name, uh, not their NamUs, but their Doe Network page, they have identified in big bold purple letters above it and like with a huge like banner of like a color and just like oh my god it <laughs> happened that is awesome <laughs> but there are so many cases still out there that people have not been identified for their cases remain cold to this day because it's really hard to start investigating murders or homicides when you don't have a name to the victim yeah, that, and one thing going off of that that really jumped out at me that I noted to bring up during our discussion here was when you said before they are identified that when they were buried it was just listed on their gravestones as male unknown and female unknown. That is just so, like, really struck me just because it seems so, it sounds so cold, it feels so cold, and I feel mm -hmm. so bad for those poor individuals and, the, and even their families who, I mean, don't know what's happened, don't know where they are, and... And just like even just if we look at the individuals and not the families to to be buried in the ground without a name, that just seems very very cold and hard. But I mean, when you you don't have an identification for them, what are you to do? Like, what do you put on the the gravestone? So that is, I'm glad that in this case they were able to finally identify them. But like you said, there's still so many out there that are not identified, and I, and that is just something that's really sad and something that I hope with time we can find better tools to come together to identify these missing persons so that this doesn't happen as often. Absolutely. And there's there's a huge array that plays into both the missing and unidentified. And especially when you get those graves that have to be marked unknown or John Doe or Jane Doe. And they sit there for years upon years. Like for example, this case today, was they got their identities back a year ago today, which I think is absolutely cool. We're recording on January 21st, by the way. Wow. <laughs> year anniversary. That's it's, crazy. it's a year anniversary for their identification. Um, but they literally sat in, in graves with those markers saying that they were unknown and female unknown for 44 years. And now they're able to, if the family chooses, be brought home. Um, but there are so many other cases like that or like for the ambigu ambiguous loss that happens with like missing persons cases of you just don't know. And I think that was the hardest part. Like when I first started kind of pushing more for my missing person to be found, like it's just you don't know if they're alive, they're dead or they're hurt somewhere. Somebody has them. You, you don't know. And it's yeah, I think that's got to be one of the hardest things about having a missing person in your family or somebody you're close to go missing is just that not knowing yeah. like what what happened, what's going on. Are, like you said, are they still alive but in a very dangerous, terrifying situation? Mm -hmm. Are they suffering? Are they gone? What is going on? I, I imagine that has to be one of the worst parts of experiencing that. Yep, because you don't really know if you should mourn yet or not, because it's like, yeah. well, what if they're still alive? And then it's like, but what if they're not? And it's just, it's it's a limbo of emotion. It's crazy. But anyway, moving past this, <laughs> this very hard topic, um, 
There are some wonderful resources out there, such as the Doe Network that I listed a little bit ago. There's the Charlie Project. Uh, NamUs is a fabulous organization. They have a catalog of insane epic proportions of missing and unidentified people. There's more than that, too, but like those are the top three that I can just list off the top of my head. Um, NECMEC is another one, now that I think about it, because I always do donations to NECMEC around my birthday because they help find missing and... Um, Oh God, what is it called? Missing and unidentified. Uh, well, yeah, missing and unidentified, but in oh, endangered, endangered, missing, unidentified, and endangered children. So, oh my gosh, their their organization is huge, and they take donations regularly. And then there's the DNA Doe Project. So if you did want to help out with trying to solve some of these cases, like DNA Doe Project is doing amazing work, and they're always taking more donations to fund their research and fund their um, progress with identifying some of these unknown DNA profiles and putting them into a ancestral database to be given their names back. But yeah. So, unfortunately, the case still remains cold. That tends to happen. Hopefully, in the next year, we might have an update. I really hope so. I'll buy a bottle of champagne, kind of like Crime Junkie did, which, by the way, if they listen, thank you, Crime Junkie. I, I followed most of your <laughs> links because you're awesome. Don't come for me. <laughs> Please don't see me. <laughs> but... um. Crime Junkie did a huge donation sale that helps fund and get the money to be able to get these two their names back. So if you can, absolutely donate. If you can't completely understand and if you have the stomach for it, because it can get really disturbing, you could check out the DNA uh, Doe Project, the Doe Network. I used to spend hours upon hours going through does and missing persons over on the Doe Network, just to see if there was anyone that matched the description of the individual who had gone missing in my life. And seeing if there's any matches between their missing and unidentified section to see if, kind of if there's a link there that maybe somebody missed. And you can do that on DNA Doe, NamUs, and uh, Charlie Project, and they usually have links down below to contact the proper authorities for the case. Thank you for sharing those resources, Katie. I'm sure there's some listeners out there who would be happy to check those out. And I definitely think it's important to share resources like that so people who know somebody who has gone missing or who are just ready to help and do what they can, it's I think it's great to share those resources out and spread the word about those as well. Yeah. Especially NamUs. Like, they have a really cool, uh, like, webpage link to their own that has literally a huge map unfortunately it's very filled with dots in presentation but it shows throughout the united states and in some other countries where people were last seen at or were reported missing or for instance if they had an unidentified person in a specific area to pinpoint and kind of pick out and see what this person looks like, what they might have been doing type of thing, and just bring it back over to their actual page on the Nameless website. So that's actually really, really cool. And I spent hours on that page, like, every night, because 
it was it was fascinating and it was also just like oh maybe i can make a difference so yeah that's my story it's your turn (laughs) (laughs) it is your it's your turn we can get silly again the seriousness is over we can bring the mood back up (laughs) Woo! yeah that was a tough one all right as they always are oh yeah need the answer (laughs) (laughs) sorry we just had a funny conversation while we were off recording (laughs) yup about how our call hung up and we had to like re-dial in and now we're like pixelated than each other like originally were um like so now we know for the future if we come in all pixelated and like sounding like robots we just hang up the call and (laughs) tell each other we'll see each other a different day (laughs) (laughs) goodbye friend i'll see you later i will see you later (laughs) yes problem solved thankfully right well we're gonna move along here to my side of things uh just a whoopsies sorry i had some tech issues here uh just a heads up (laughs) usually uh when we switch over to this side of the podcast uh well even now it will still be a little bit obviously a little bit more lighthearted than katie's section Um, (laughs) (laughs) i actually breathe easily i'm like oh all the weight's gone i'm good (laughs) now that we're past that uh occasionally though i will need to issue some trigger warnings for my content not too often hopefully today i am going to issue a trigger warning however for discussion of sexual violence rape and topics of that nature so just a heads up, if you are not in the proper headspace today to discuss such topics, or I should say listen to such topics, if you're not <laughs> discussing this with me. <laughs> there she goes! Oh no, I got it back. <laughs> Sorry, you couldn't see it, but I just like yeah. took my headset off. I'm like, okay, yeah. <laughs> We're done. Let me go take my serotonin real quick. <laughs> but yes, trigger warning for topics including rape and sexual violence just saying that up front here and obviously we will be respectful at those points oh of course yeah as always we do our best to be respectful in how we discuss these topics and these matters um so we do take it seriously even though you do hear us laughing over here and trying to have a good time we do understand this is a heavy topic and definitely perceive it as so so please don't misinterpret it as we are not taking it seriously because we we do definitely understand this is a very severe topic and i, I can assure you we both yeah, take it very, very seriously, seriously. <laughs> all right yes let me situate all myself. right moving <laughs> <laughs> so today we are going to discuss our first urban legend on the podcast <laughs> i'm excited about that <laughs> oh yeah it's gonna be fun so, just in case you don't know what an urban legend is, or you're like me a few years ago and you kind of sort of know what it is, but maybe not entirely, the definition of urban legend from Merriam-Webster Dictionary as of 2022 is an often lurid story or anecdote that is based on hearsay and widely circulated as true. And in case you're wondering, this term originated in 1968, so it was the mid to late 1900s that we started talking about, or at least calling these things urban legends. 
All right. So, according to the Stuff Mom Never Told You podcast, definitely go check them out if you haven't already. There is usually no evidence for these stories and legends, and often the urban legend stories come with an underlying message of either morality, a morality tale where they're trying to teach you something, or the story itself may result from some sort of societal anxiety about something. So those are a couple other things to consider when we're discussing urban legends. Another quick disclaimer before we really dig in here. Some cases I will cover do originate from other countries or other cultures other than my own. In fact, a lot of these cases probably will. And I'm going to speak with uh, about these cases as respectfully as possible. And I do want to say that I'm covering these cases out of an interest in the paranormal, an interest in the topic, as well as an interest in other places and cultures. And I, I do recognize them, a lot of these places and cultures, as not my own. And I'm going to try to cover them with as much compassion and respect and understanding as possible. So again, I'm going to try to be very respectful when discussing other cultures and places. Now, how I got the idea for this particular episode, again, shout out to Stuff Mom Never Told You. They did an episode on women of urban legends, or I should say two episodes on that topic. And a couple of those urban legends in particular really jumped out at me and stuck in my memory. The one we're going to cover today was very briefly mentioned. They actually didn't dig as deeply into this one as some of the other ones they covered, which might have been one of the reasons why I wanted to really uh, go look into it more. But not only that, the, the topic I'm covering today also just really grabbed my attention, I think, because... It was one of those things where I feel like I'm, uh, as probably a lot of Americans can say, I'm desensitized to a, a lot of things nowadays, from all the media that we get, and the video games, the movies, and all the scary things, especially since I love horror <laughs> movies. Um, not a lot of things seem to scare as me As I anymore, said, everyone, like, college College took that away from me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and there's Katie over there with pictures of oh, murder cases God. in her textbooks, and I'm like, please don't show I'm me. like, there's literally a full <laughs> textbook that I went and grabbed yesterday because I'm like, oh, this one's got to have the definition. It's titled Practical Homicide Investigation. And literally, I always Ugh. forget about what's all in there, and I'll, like, open a page to somewhere, I'm like... <clears throat> <laughs> oh my god what happened here and i end up reading about oh. that case i'm like oh my god but yeah no no desensitized completely <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> so that was one thing too about this particular urban legend that jumped out at me is when i did learn about it this is something that i would say would scare me <laughs> it is it is scary uh, and part of that might be my background in in terms of my demographics, which will make sense in a minute. Um, but yes. So, uh, and uh, also, as an American, <laughs> the name of this urban legend did sound a little silly to me at first, and I'm not trying to say that in any disrespectful way. I'm just being completely honest here. Uh, but it is a quite serious urban legend, and like I said, one that I do find very scary. Uh, so please do not let the name fool you if you you are like me from America and the words don't sound that serious because I assure you this urban legend is very serious. Uh, so have you ever heard before, Katie, of the urban legend called Pinky Pinky? It sounds familiar. However, I do not know the story. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to dig into that today. And- <laughs> Right? That's what, the first time I heard it, I was like, did I just hear them right? Like, what is, what is the name? 
So this urban legend comes from South Africa, which, like I said, might be why us Americans think the name doesn't sound that serious. Um, but to introduce you to Pinky Pinky, also sometimes referred to as Pinky Pink, though I most commonly hear it referred to or saw it referred to as Pinky Pinky, I'm going, I'd like to read a poem written by Peter Anderson as of 2021, and it is titled The Pinky Pink to introduce you to this urban legend. Have you ever wondered why girls go two by two, teaming up with a friend just to use the loo? In South Africa, there's an answer, an old urban myth. But first, let me tell you a story about a schoolgirl called Elizabeth. Once upon a time, not so long ago, Elizabeth was in her class and had a sudden need to go. She raised her hand for the teacher and asked to be excused. In the toilet, she picked the cubicle that looked the least used. Just as she was seated, she heard footsteps behind the door, walking slowly past, then returned once more. Elizabeth called, hello, expecting a response, her words hanging in the air, a bathroom seance. Then a voice from the cubicle next door, my name is Pinky Pink, don't you know the lore? Where's my present, little girl, and it has to be pink. Vest, t-shirt, panties, socks, I don't care if they stink. Elizabeth had such a fright, she had no idea what to say. Come on, little girl, I haven't got all day. I don't have anything pink, Elizabeth lied. That's what the last girl said, Pinky Pink replied. She was yanked by her ponytail off the toilet seat. Grabbing at the hands that held her, she was lifted off her feet. She kicked and screamed, cried for help, hair torn from its roots. She hit the floor, dragged under the door by her new pink boots. Full of rage was Pinky Pink, eyes bulging from her head, an angry pink-skinned tokolosh stinking of the dead. Long, filthy fingernails tore the little girl to shreds. The teacher that discovered the remains had to be put on meds. Blood dripped from the ceiling, pooling on the floor. Pinky Pink had wrote her name on every cubicle door. Some say urban legend, but girls go two by two. In Africa, little girls go missing, going to the loo. What would be your first impression based on that well, poem, Katie? <laughs> in a criminology sense, it's not exactly wrong. <laughs> um, <laughs> there are a lot of cases that happen within, like, I hate to call Africa a third world country, but um, even like in Mexico, per se, like when girls go to the bathroom, they're typically sexually assaulted or they can go missing. Once again, leading back over to what we talked about in my case, when it comes to like human trafficking, sex trafficking, or even murder, like mm -hmm. these can be predominant places where girls go missing. And I think that even kind of leans back over to our own side of things that most girls, when we go out together, we try to stay as a pack. And if we go to the bathroom, we always have each other's back. Oh, yeah. wow. I am rhyming. <laughs> <laughs> Did you even write that down? Damn. Off Damn. Freestyle. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. But yeah, like it. It comes off as being like, yeah, there's the urban legend, but it's also almost that like educational like tale to 
avoid these types of cases. Oh, yeah. And I'm so glad you said that. We will definitely (laughs) be coming back to that later. But for sure, I think um, this is actually something that one of the podcasters said that I was listening to um, when reading about Pinky Pinky is it seems like there's a lot of urban legends that do come from bathrooms, unfortunately. Um, Like... Bloody Mary. I know of some uh, ghosts that apparently are Japanese urban legends I found out, but there's a few different ghosts that haunt bathrooms. I mean, you even have the ghost in Harry Potter that haunts the bathroom, though. She's much less creepy. Um, (laughs) But yes, there's definitely a trend of weird creatures and hauntings and stories of things that get you in the bathroom, off in the girls' bathroom. And I totally agree that that was one of my first thoughts when I learned about Pinky Pinky. As it was like, well, hell yeah, uh, we go to the bathroom together. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not just because of fictional monsters or urban legends, but because of real threats out there that we are afraid of and have to live with. And so that's probably why the story really rang out to me and really clicked with me. Like I said earlier, because my demographics, it's because I'm as a woman... Uh, This is something that really was like, yeah, I'm scared to go into a bathroom alone sometimes, like, depending on the time and place and what's going on, you know, it can get pretty sketchy. (laughs) Oh, yeah. And, like, even speaking from my side of things, like, I lived in Phoenix, Arizona, which is one of the more prevalent sex trafficking areas in the country. And I did not live in a good area. (laughs) I was across the street from West Campus. And even just going to Walmart by myself was a horrifying venture. And disclaimer, I am supportive of 2A. We won't go too far into the political spectrum on that, but I obviously carry. So, like, having that's a little bit of a comfort, but honestly, like, if I can avoid using that, I'm not going to use it. Um, But even then, like, just having the looks that some grown men gave me or being followed around the store... Or to the point, like, where my friend and I, and I was actually thinking about this the other night, that we went to Walmart to get cookies at, like, midnight. And she didn't even notice, but we started getting followed over in the bakery section. And I turned to her, and I grabbed her arm real quick, and we started going down a different aisle. And I kind of, like, peered over my shoulder. And the guy had walked to the aisle, peeked down, and, like, quickly hurried to the next one as to look like he wasn't following. I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. And getting out of those types of situations are so terrifying. Oh, yeah. In addition to, like, just having one person show up, you don't know if there's somebody waiting in the parking lot for you. And it's just oh, like, yeah, definitely. Do I have enough girl support to be able to be like, we're going to make it out of this? And eventually, like, when he kept following us, I'm like, okay, we need to go talk to somebody up front because they should have security around here that can escort us to our vehicle. And thank God they did because there was a guy sitting out in a van just looking like he was up to no good. I'm like, and this friend got in with him. I'm like, oh, my God. No. No, 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 no. Oh, my gosh. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's terrifying being female. Absolutely horrifying. Yeah, and like, not yeah. to say like I'm attractive or anything, and like I wouldn't be like the typical person that would be grabbed in like retrospect to like media for telling of it. Like, I I'm definitely overweight to say the least, and I'm gonna work on getting that down. But like, anyone can be a victim, and it's not just females either. Although they are more oh, yeah. prevalent, but. Yeah. It's men, children, 
females, but they they look for anyone and everyone. Because honestly, if you're you've got some weight on you, that's the less they have to feed you to get you down the size. It's insane. Yeah. <laughs> Let me just spike your anxiety the, real quick. Yeah, right. Criminology real quick. Not trying to scare all of you. That's not our intention. This is supposed to be a lighthearted side of things. And I'm just like, let me bring my side back in a little bit. And we'll talk a little bit on why. <laughs> sorry. Oh, man. Yeah, so sorry about that. But no, um, did want to bring that up. Though. And I, like I said, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, and we'll probably go back into that a little bit later in the episode. But yes, a lot of urban legends, like I said before, do, like I said, come from societal anxiety. And this is one of those societal anxieties, you know, what women, or like you said, it's not always women. It can be boys and men too. Um, but what people have to face in some of these situations and what people are scared of. So we'll definitely talk about the origins of this urban legend later um, and dig into that a little bit more. But yeah, I just wanted to get your first impression just based on the poem of how you reacted to it to see if it was similar to kind of how I reacted to it, yeah. which it sounds like it was. So. It's, that, like, it's that cautionary tale or that like advice situation of like, don't yeah. do this, don't go to the bathroom alone. Like these are advisory tips to keep you safe. Exactly. And that's definitely the first impression I got from it as well when I heard about Pinky Peaky. So I was just curious to see if you did too. Yeah. All right. So now that we have that little <laughs> heavy deep dive Ooh. into the things we're scared of, <laughs> let's talk about Pinky Pinky. So like many urban legends, Pinky Pinky has a few different descriptions depending on what specific locality you are hearing about this urban legend from, or even just over time, the description may change. Uh, but all of the def- or excuse me, all of the descriptions that I came across uh, seem to include it being a tokolosh, uh, which is a, a different South African urban legend uh, that attacks or murders girls in the bathroom, demanding pink underwear or some sort of pink item from the girl. And one important thing as well that is a commonality between all the sources I could find on this urban legend is that the pink- pinky pinky can only be seen by girls. So this specific creature, monster, whatever you want to call it, uh, cannot be seen by men or boys. It can only be seen by girls or women, according to the legend. And like I did quickly mention there, it is a Tokolosh, and I will definitely do a deep dive into Tokoloshes on another episode, because uh, that is a whole other category of <laughs> urban legend monsters that comes from South Africa. Um, apparently a really big urban legend out there based on what I was reading. Uh, but just a little bit about them now, just so you have an idea of what I mean when I say Tokolosh, is they tend to be small in size and they're humanoid creatures that are malevolent by nature. Now, Pinky Pinky in particular, besides being described just as a Tokolosh in general, has been described as being part man, part woman, part human, part animal, and sometimes, even more specifically, part dog and part cat. So, very interesting creature we are discussing here. Uh, some have even described it as maybe not necessarily being part man, part woman, but more just a feminine-looking man who wears a combination of both traditionally male and female clothing. Others describe the part man, part woman as specifically referring to it having both male and female genitals. So there's some different interpretations of what exactly that means. 
However, most of the descriptions often say that it speaks in a feminine voice, and it will usually have either pink hair or pink skin, and a featureless face. It says when you look at this creature, you cannot make out any features on its face. It's either blurred out or you just can't see it, so it's basically a faceless monster. <laughs> yeah, a little creepy. That got me. I'm like, I was like mm. I'm like, it's pink Slenderman. Okay, <laughs> pretty much. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> some do say it's bald. So in some renditions of it, it may not have hair at all. It may just be pink skinned and bald. Uh, but another commonality that I found across a lot of the descriptions is that it has one hand, for lack of a better word, that is a paw. And then the other hand, what would be a hand, is entirely one big claw. And they describe it as being a very long claw. So, that's also a little creepy. Like, that, I was definitely like, ooh, that sounds like horror movie material. That, that is horror movie material. Ooh, yeah. I'm like, I'm thinking back over to, like, Resident Evil. Granted, this is what I'm playing through right now for YouTube. Like, thinking back over to, like, Dr. Uh, Birkin and how he looks with his first mutation. I'm like, ooh. 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 <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it definitely brought up a few different, like, horror movie uh, characters in my head that, of course, right now I can't think of their names off the top of my head. But yeah, it definitely brought a few to mind of, like, scary monsters or people with big stabby weapons on their hands. Just like, yeah, that doesn't look good. <laughs> yeah, not something I want to meet firsthand. Yeah, no, no pun intended. <laughs> And then I did find one source. Uh, this one definitely does not seem like a common description of Pinky Pinky, I, since I only found a single source describing it this way. But just an honorable mention, there was one description of Pinky Pinky having burnt skin and hair made of metal wires, which also sounds very terrifying. So yeah, yeah, <laughs> still that, don't want to meet him in the bathroom. More so. <laughs> <laughs> and then. No matter what he looks, or she, I guess it's usually referred to as a she, no matter what she looks like, she supposedly lives between the girls' and boys' restrooms at the school, or in the walls of the girls' restroom. <laughs> yeah, that was my reaction, no. too. <laughs> no! No! <laughs> Absolutely not. Uh, yeah. <sighs> not a fan. Nope, nope. <laughs> yeah, I was very much like, nah. <laughs> like my poor like spine is just like. <laughs> right. I'm like nah. Yeah, I was definitely when I was reading this, I was like, I'm glad I'm not going to school anymore because I would even as an adult, I'd be like, yeah, no, I don't want to go to the bathroom now. No, thank you. <laughs> I mean, how many times in college was I like the bathrooms were like outside yeah. most of the time, so I'm like. You, come here. We're going. <laughs> it's bathroom party time. Come with me. Bathroom party time. There's a exactly. troll in the dungeon. We gotta go together. Exactly. We learned from Harry Potter. You do not go to the bathroom alone because the troll's gonna come get you. <laughs> All right. Yeah. And then to top it off, some legends do say that Pinky, Pinky will also sing to announce its presence before it comes to get you. I couldn't find any writing on what it is that it sings, but I don't need to know what it sings, because already that's just, that's creepy. I'm not into that. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's kind of creepy. Makes me, makes me wonder what people were thinking whenever I'd use the bathroom for acoustics and they were like, the key in there. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, my God. So, what happens uh, when you come across Pinky Pinky? 
So, the legend goes, generally speaking, Pinky uh, Pinky tends to go after girls who are wearing pink underwear or other pink clothing. And if a girl makes the mistake of wearing pink underwear to the bathroom, she will likely be attacked, raped, injured, or murdered in the restroom by Pinky Pinky. It most often goes after prepubescent girls. There is not really any tellings I could find of besides one uh, uh, fictional story somebody had written based on the urban legend, but there was no actual sightings I could find referencing it attacking adult women. It seems to have a preference for school-age girls, especially in uh, what I would imagine would be like ages of elementary school, maybe middle school. It seemed like that's the target range of this creature. And while, like I said, while boys can't see it and are don't appear to be its target, there are some accounts of boys who claim to be attacked by Pinky Pinky. Due to this urban legend, it is apparently common for girls and grown women in South Africa to go to the bathroom in pairs or groups for safety. And there are multiple writings from now grown women that I've read recounting some of their experiences from childhood that said that it was absolutely terrifying to go to the bathroom alone as a girl. Uh, and now even as a, an adult, they still feel very fearful going to the bathroom alone because of these this, this story, because of Pinky Pinky. I would like to briefly mention there was a movie recently released uh, that was inspired by Pinky Pinky. It came out in South, out, South Africa. <laughs> Uh, the movie Pinky Pinky from 2020 was directed by Mandylock Yango, and I do apologize if I mispronounce that. I'm going off of an online pronunciation guide for that name. And a brief synopsis of the movie was, the storyline is there is a formal principal of the school, pictured in the movie, that was murdered after news spread that he was sexually abusing a female student. Dark magic brings him back to life as some sort of evil zombie slash ghost monster is how it was described when I was reading about it. And he haunts the girls' bathrooms, looking to steal the souls of girls, and thus gets named Pinky Pinky based on the urban legend. Uh, now, I wasn't able to personally watch this movie. Unfortunately, for whatever reason, it said online that if you're in America, for some reason, the program that the movie is available on online, like, you cannot access it unless you have, um, I believe it would be an IP address that says you're not from America. <laughs> so I don't know what's up with that, but unfortunately I was not able to watch the movie, so I'm just going to have to go completely off of articles and reviews of the movie. And apparently in it, there was multiple incidents of sexual abuse, and one reviewer states that the movie thus was used um, as a horror movie to point out a known societal problem of South Africa. And I'd like to quote the author of one of the articles I read about the movie. Again, I apologize if I'm mispronouncing her name. Esinako Dabeni from 2021, who stated, We are not safe, not from our uncles, or our school principals, or our fathers. That is the true horror of South African society. Which that quote just mm -hmm. chilled me to the bone, so I really wanted to share that here, because she was, uh, in the article, I mean, discussing the movie, but also discussing the urban legend, Pinky Pinky, that the movie was based on, but then talking about how she personally believed both the urban legend and the movie were based on real-life problems that women and girls in South Africa are experiencing, and she thought that... And 
I can't remember if it was her or another author. I remember one of the reviews I read about the movie, whoever it was. They were not impressed by the movie at all. But <laughs> the one com commonality I did see across the reviews I did read was everybody said that they clearly got the message that it was basically a tool to showcase a, a problem that they are experiencing in their society. And when I, I say that, I, I do not mean that we're not experiencing the yeah. same problem here, because we <laughs> definitely are. Um, but I'm just, just since this movie was, came out in South Africa and the people reviewing it were referring directly to South Africa, that's the only reason. I'm yeah, and that it way. might not be as like prevalent in the United States as, as in South Africa as well. Definitely, and I do have some statistics I'll share at the very end about that that are <laughs> very disheartening, oh. unfortunately. So this urban legend of Pinky Pinky originated in 1994, at least that is the earliest mention of it I could find um, referenced. And this occurred at the same time when there were claims of sightings of the creature, as well as around a time when apparently a lot of women were going missing in South Africa at this time. A writing from one of the women who I read about, uh, who grew up in South Africa around this time period, stated that other school children knew of it, but adults knew very little of Pinky Pinky, so the school children believed that this creature had originated in what they called Old South Africa, referring to many years ago, and has been dormant, and suddenly, for whatever reason, became active again during their school years. Sightings have decreased in recent years, I found online, uh, at least by word of mouth, from what I could tell, an article said that sightings have decreased so it seemed very common in the late 1990s when the urban legend first originated and since then it seems like there's been less sightings of the creature now as far as origins of this urban legend like i said at, at the top of the section i did want to go back and discuss a few things of why would an urban legend like this come around um and why would we still be telling this story now, Femlore Podcast brought up some really interesting points that I wanted to bring to the table to discuss. One thing that they brought up is that the bathroom is a place where we feel very physical, and thus it tends to be a place where we feel vulnerable and intimate. Additionally, they, they did mention something Katie and I have discussed already, that even American women often do not feel comfortable going to public bathrooms alone, that we will often pair up and group up, and we didn't even grow up with this urban legend to scare us, and we still do that. <laughs> Oh, yeah. <laughs> another, another thing that they brought up that, again, like, as an American woman, this is something I do, is that we are maybe not explicitly taught, per se, um, but, I mean, I don't, I don't know how to put it. I mean, you get, you get the message from media. You get it probably, to a certain extent, just being raised as well. But uh, basically that women are also taught one way or another to lock their doors when you're in the shower or taking a bath. Not just for privacy reasons. I mean, obviously you don't want somebody walking in when you're a little naky in the shower. But <laughs> because of the more serious underlying message of it's a very vulnerable place in time. And it's it's a time uh, and space that you could be taken oh, yeah. advantage of. So we are taught to lock our doors. And, and I know especially like when I was living in an apartment and not a house, I would like go check the front door, go check the windows, like... It seems a little extensive, but uh, that apartment also was in a neighborhood that wasn't very great and had some higher Which is, crime rates. And it's so, crazy because uh, <laughs> looking at like the statistics of the city that you're in, the city that I'm currently moving back to, like 
you're right across the street from the police department. It shouldn't be that bad, but that's literally one of the worst yeah. areas in the whole town. And it is a huge hot spot for crime. I'm just like, right? why? The PD's right there. <laughs> that's what I thought when I moved into the apartment complex. I was like, well, I mean, it's cheap for a reason. You can definitely yep. see why it's cheap, but I didn't think as much about the crime rates. I mean, I knew just from being in that town for a little while by that point, that was yeah. not the best part of town. But I didn't realize, like, if you actually look at the crime rates, that they were much higher right there. And that's what got me, is I was like, but the police station's right there. Why would this be happening? I remember when I came over for the first time, you're like, I got an apartment! And I'm like, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I was just like, <laughs> okay. And, like, I could even speak on my end of thing. Like I said earlier, I lived in Glendale, Arizona, and, like, I literally was at the tip of Phoenix, Glendale, and Peoria. Like, I was just in this little section that if I went one way or another, I could be in either city. <laughs> um, but there, like, I I definitely, like, I make fun. I'm like, I was in the ghetto. And, like, not to, like, put that as, like, being, like, rude or anything. But, like, it was bad. It was bad. Um, yeah. But, like... There was one day that I came out to my car. It was like seven in the morning. I was heading to analytical chemistry. I was on the phone with my now ex and I went, I'm going to have to call you back. I need to call the police because I looked at my car and it had been shot three times. And I still have the license plate and it hangs in my bathroom <laughs> with the damn bullet hole in it. Oh, man. <laughs> but yeah. I... My front door, I remember distinctly, did not shut all the way. Ugh, that would Yeah, me. and there was always a crack at the bottom of Ugh. light that would peer in. So I went out of my way, and, like, if you guys don't know about, like, well-armed women or societies like that, like, I think there's another one that's, like, Women in Justice or the um, DC Project is another one. They link to a lot of sites where you can get self-defense tools and home protection tools. So I went on there and like my mom and I were scrolling through and she ended up getting me a door stop that works as a alarm system. So when the door opens, Ooh, it triggers the alarm and then it locks up so the door can't move any further. And it gives you a heads up to somebody's trying to come in. Yeah, I... Oh, I, I actually think I forgot about that. It's been a long time. But I looked into those a lot when I was living in that apartment, actually, and was planning on eventually buying one of those just because mm -hmm. there's only so much you can do sometimes when you're oh, in yeah. some bad neighborhoods and you just gotta do what you gotta do to keep yourself safe. So I can definitely no, relate like, to that. <laughs> unfortunately, being a victim of like previous break-ins and things like that, like that definitely gives some peace to mind things because like obviously they could go ahead and break out a window after that but that gives me enough time to just get ready yeah to brace what's coming at me mm -hmm. and i'm like okay here's what's gonna happen <laughs> exactly <laughs> oh like here's what's gonna happen what am i grabbing what am i using we go on baseball bat we go on the nine like what are we getting <laughs> so don't go mess with katie because you've now heard yeah. she is well prepared <laughs> i'm like don't fuck with me <laughs> Oh, man. Yeah, so I think that... I have the power of God and anime on my side. <laughs> oh, my goodness. And, I mean, that, I think it's a good venue. And to another point they brought up, 
is that Pinky Pinky, since uh, it's described as being part male and part female, they said it did bring up the fact also they interpreted it as it impersonates how a predator can be anyone. Mm -hmm. Um, And while we will go over some statistics later, like I said, (laughs) um, you generally imagine the stereotypical victim's going to be some cute little lady. And stereotypically, you would imagine the predator to be some creepy-looking guy, but that's not always true, you know? Those are the stereotypes, and they are stereotypes for a reason. I mean, statistically speaking, a lot of time that is true of who is the victim and who is the the perpetrator, but that's not always the case. There are females who can be predators, and there are men and boys who can be victims, and that is something that happens and something that we don't talk about a lot, but it does happen. And so that was one interesting thing about this creature as well, because it is both male and female. They discussed how that may... uh, show a clue and symbolize how it's not always a man who is the predator or who is the perpetrator of violence it can be a woman well even going as far as like how it also describes how it took the shape of animals too mm-hmm. like it might not even be human and like oh, yeah. growing up in not necessarily like an urban but not necessarily like a rural part of Colorado like I was taught at a young age that if you heard a rattling in the bush, you stood still because it was a rattlesnake probably, and those fuckers will kill you in an instant because they have no remorse in my opinion. Or, like, (laughs) if you saw a bear on the road, like, you start making as much noise as possible Mm -hmm. to scare it away. If you saw a mountain lion, you try to stay as quiet as possible and get away from it as fast as possible. Especially, like, if you're hiking up in the mountains, Mm -hmm. like, there are many different things that can unfortunately attack and maul you and brutally maim you as a person. Yeah, and I mean, uh, being a person who works in the outdoors, like, that is my job. I am out in the forest, out in the mountains, out in the desert, depending on where my job is at the time. That is something I've learned very well, is what are the animals out here who can hurt me? And Mm -hmm. what will they do to me if, you know, something goes wrong and the shit hits the fan? And uh, speaking from my my knowledge and my training and all that, I will say, in most cases, animals... we get the animals... turkey story? What? No, no, we, we get the turkey get story? the turkey story? No, we do not. <laughs> <laughs> we'll probably have that come up later in the podcast, but not now. <laughs> no, speaking from experience and knowledge, most animals in the wild usually are more afraid of you than you are afraid of it. Even bears, mm-hmm. I mean... Granted, that depends on what kind of bear it is or where you are. If it's a bear in Alaska, I'm staying the fuck away from it. <laughs> but mm-hmm. but uh, in California, which I've done quite a few jobs in, I mean, most of those black bears I came across, and to be fair, like I said, this is generally in the middle of nowhere, not like in an urban area, they usually run away from me. You know, they don't want anything to do with me. And so I generally am not that afraid of animals to be like totally honest because I know what to do if I come across one that isn't running away <laughs> and what to expect. Um, but also because like I said, I've come across more animals than I can count. And a lot of them have been what you would consider a predator. Like, like a, mostly bears, <laughs> but also mostly other things bears. too. Um, and most of the time, you know, I, this is something I've talked about so many times before when people ask me like, what's it like to work in the field and be working with animals or serving animals and being around animals and, like, 
how are you not scared of the animals? Like, how does that not terrify you? And to, like I said, to be fair, I am scared to a certain point. Like, I still acknowledge, like, yes, this is a, a big thing that can do some serious damage to me if it wanted to. Like, so don't think I'm also going into this just being like, la ti da Like, who cares about what's around me? Like, no, I definitely have a lot of situational awareness <laughs> and training. Uh, but at the end of the day, what I usually say is, you know what I'm really scared of when I'm working in the field? It's not animals. It's people. Because oh, yeah. a lot of these places that are out in the boonies in the middle of nowhere, you don't know who you're going to run into. You don't know what they're doing out there. And while most of the time they're usually doing perfectly legal things and, and even nice, great people to talk to. I've met so many great people in the woods. A lot of time, you know, they're hiking or bird watching or maybe even collecting wood for their, their fire back home. Perfectly legal, great things, great people. And so I also don't want to make you scared of walking in the woods either. <laughs> but I know people who have met criminals in the woods. Meanwhile, I'm over here. I'm like, I'll make you a friend. Just wait. Don't listen to Katie. She will make you afraid of walking in the woods. I will make you afraid of walking in the woods. Just wait. But no. There's so many stories. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, but there is... Um, criminal activities that take place in the woods. And I know we're kind of going on a, ra- a rabbit hole here, so I will bring us back in in just a moment. But, <laughs> um, I mean, working out west, one thing that we receive training on is there's, like, marijuana farms in some of the forests. There is uh, meth labs in the middle of the desert. There is some weird things going on out there that you would never guess would be out there. And they are. <laughs> and so for those of us that are working out in the boonies, and, I mean, there's not cops or somebody right around the corner who can have your back if shit goes down those are things we are trained on and things we have to be aware of is that a lot of time the things that are most dangerous to us aren't the animals or the environment a lot of the time it's people out there who have no good reason to be out there and and shouldn't be out there doing what they're doing but they are because those places are so remote they're less likely to get caught doing these activities mm-hmm. um so again <laughs> like i said i'm gonna ring in the rabbit hole here um but Again, predators can be anybody, unfortunately, and not trying to make scared. But these, as as you know, when we're talking about topics like this, we're going to discuss some of the things that may make us scared and things that we think about and experience in our lives. And we do invite you listeners that if you would like to talk about these things, please do email us about it. We'd love to talk. Um, but that that is <laughs> the source of a lot of these stories and a lot of these urban legends is things like this that we're scared of and for good reason. You know, there are statistics saying this does happen. And while most of the time, you know, you're perfectly fine and you are taking precautions that may have not been necessary for strictly looking if something was going to actually happen or not, I'd rather take those precautions and play it safe than not. And that'd be the one time something does actually happen. we both went dark this week we went dark this week sorry everybody i uh debated not bringing this in as a second episode because i don't want you to be scared away from our podcast and not want to ever listen again but i promise this every week is not going to be like this on my end of the show most of the time it will be a lot more lighthearted. most of the time we won't be talking about topics as dark as this uh, but this is one that, like I said, really jumped out at me and really grabbed my interest. And I try to bring things to the table that I find really interesting at that moment so we can have some passionate discussion about it. <laughs> it's hopefully interesting to you as a listener. Um, but unfortunately, this week, that was something a little bit more dark. Uh, and actually, P, 
piggybacking. Whoa, head, my headphones there. I hope you didn't hear that. <laughs> I, I saw that. I'm like, you good? I thought you like whacked it off your head. I'm like, <laughs> okay, bye. <laughs> bye. <laughs> That's all for now. No. Piggybacking off of that idea that I've reiterated a, a bajillion times already now in this episode. Um, so another thing that was brought up when they were, when I say there, I should probably reiterate who I'm talking about. The Femlore podcast um, brought up in their discussion was that they also pointed out that Pinky Pinky uses a female voice in most of its descriptions, and they thought that was particularly interesting because a lot of the time, and I can speak from personal experience that I agree with them, females are often more trusting of other females. And like I said earlier, that's not always a good thing, you know? It's, like, bad people can be women. Women can be bad people. Um, but they're thinking that might be a reason, too, that Pinky Pinky is described as using a female voice, is that might be a good way to lure in victims. And, I mean, if you look at the, the natural world out there, there's lots of animals that have really clever tricks when they're trying to eat other animals of how to lure them in. Like, come here, little buddy, I'd love to eat you! And so, I mean, <laughs> urban legends and monsters that might want to come after people, too? I can see that. I can see how they, maybe they have some tricks up their sleeve of how I want to go after the, this unbeknownst little girl. How do I do that? And in this case, Pinky Pinky might use a, a female voice to do so. So, now we have gotten past all of that, um, they did bring up the question, uh, which is something that Katie has already brought up, which I was really happy about. Uh, is this legend intended to caution women to keep them safe from maybe not this, uh, this creature that is most likely, as most urban legends are fictional, uh, but against real-life issues and problems that could really be a danger to them? Like, is that the purpose of this urban legend? Is that why this urban legend was created? And on the flip side, you know, there we do like horror movies, or at least a lot of us do, and we like horrific stories to entertain us, and that might be why you're listening to this podcast. Uh, so there's also that, too. Maybe we made the story just to scare us, because we like being scared. We like the adrenaline rush, or at least some of us do. <laughs> Um, but that, that was a question brought up. Like, was this a story created because we just like scary stories? Or is this a story created because there are some real problems out there that women need to be afraid of? And this is a nice way to kind of, uh, put a disguise on those real problems we don't want to talk about, but still get the message across that if you're a lady, maybe you don't want to go to the bathroom alone. <laughs> Always go in Paris. Yeah. Always. <laughs> yup. <laughs> Do you have uh, any quick commentary on that before I, I jump on to the next thing re relating to Pinky Pinky? Well, going back to how it makes itself sound like a woman and like even going back as far as like talking about how trafficking happens, there have been a lot of instances in the past couple of years where women are actually the lures for Ugh. the males. So I think there was like an example a couple of years back when a gal was like, talking about a church and ultimately like if you come with me I can help you out and like she was just picking off of people that like looked like they really needed help and oh my gosh. would take them outside and ultimately they would be kidnapped by the males that were waiting at the van Ugh. so like don't think that women can't be just as cruel and naive and like as sinister as a male serial killer can because they do exist they are out there like don't think that just because 
the sexual biology is different that makes them any less of a threat. Definitely. Yeah. (laughs) The story really comes through with that. Like I said, it is considered part man, part woman, but still, it does make me wonder, and of course, I'm like the um, gender topics nerd over here. I love my gender communications class that dug into a lot of issues revolving around cultural identity and gender and all those things. So I feel like I come into a lot of these things with a mindset (laughs) like that. Um, But that was something that really interested me about this monster is a lot of... Uh, things that scare us or or stories we tell that are scary, like I said before, a lot of the time we use the stereotypical just straight-up male character as the perpetrator or the monster or the criminal. And in this, this case, it wasn't just a straight-up male character. You know, it was a creature that is both male and female and has characteristics um, that are both considered masculine and feminine. And I thought that was particularly interesting and maybe even made me wonder, uh, you know, we have a lot of What's the word? What's the word? Uh, I mean, there's battle of the sexes. We have all this whole thing culturally. And granted, again, I'm an American, so I'm speaking from American culture. But this whole thing of we perceive men a certain way and we perceive women a certain way. And we like to make it oh. very black and white. That This is what a man is and this is what a woman is. <laughs> it's gender stereotyping. <laughs> yes, thank you. Gender. Oh my gosh, I can't talk. Gender <laughs> stereotyping. <laughs> And so this story also kind of um, made me think about that, too, is, like, did this also originate from that uncomfortable zone of, like, we see it so black and white, but sometimes it's not. And uh, Mm -hmm. things that aren't black and white sometimes scare us. So is this monster both male and female? Because we're very uncomfortable with some uh, gender-related issues between men and women or how we're perceived if we're a woman perceived as masculine or a man perceived as feminine that that can be really bad just those kinds of issues as well which i won't jump into too deeply because i will get up on my pedestal and talk about that for an hour but yeah. i'm like uh, i already got on my soapbox today okay it's gonna be a hard kickoff to get me off of there yeah <laughs> i just wanted to bring that up as a brief mention as well that this did get me thinking about that when trying to think of how did this urban legend originate where did it come from that was another thing that popped into my head all right (laughs) (laughs) now uh really quick before the statistics there goes my mouse (laughs) uh so the what i did read about when researching how did this likely originate the most common theory and belief of how the story originated is, like I said, related to that series of women going missing in the early 1990s in South Africa. And it said that at the time, rumor was spreading that maybe these women were being kidnapped when they went to the bathroom alone. And thus, they believe the story sprouted from that. And again, it was likely a story made to keep girls and women out of danger during a time period where there like I said, there was a lot of women going missing. There was kind of a string of incidents going on when this the story came about. So maybe this was made as a cautionary tale to keep women and girls safe. And uh, another note that a lot was common across a lot of these sources trying to figure out where it originated from is that it seems that Pinky Pinky may be a realization of South African women's fear of being a victim of sexual violence. However, I do want to point out Um, As one of the sources pointed out, 
this still places the blame on the woman that is being attacked. In this story, the woman is only attacked if she is wearing pink underwear or wearing a pink item, and pink is generally viewed as something very feminine. So it is still placing the blame on the woman, which can be a big problem when it comes to sexual violence and rape culture and all that of saying, oh, well, it was the woman's fault, whether that's she was drinking or she was wearing shorts that were too short or whatever the case may be. I know you've all heard it a million times before. Mm -hmm. This urban legend still does that and still says, well, you would have been fine if you had just gone to the bathroom with a friend or you would have been fine if you had just not worn pink today. And so that was another thing that really jumped out at me that I wanted to definitely mention. Now. It's <clears throat> victim blaming. Oh, yeah. Yep. And it still happens to the, today. Like, if you look back at Chanel's case with um, Brock Turner, like, she got victim blamed a lot during that trial because he had a predominant career that he could have gone for with swimming. Like, it, it's insane. It still happens today. Yeah. And so that's definitely a big issue. And again, like, these issues we're discussing, these aren't just problems in South Africa where the story originated. These are problems in America, too, and in plenty of other countries. And it's something that continues to be an issue and is something that we need to keep talking about so that it's recognized that it's an issue so that we can hopefully address it and try to make it less of an issue. So going off of that, here's some hopefully quick statistics <laughs> about these real issues uh, that we believe is how the story originated. And of course, I don't want to delve too deeply into this. I know this episode, um, on my end of things, we really dug into some of the real life consequences, context, uh, complications that are associated with this urban legend. And a lot of the episodes, I don't think we'll go quite as big of a deep dive into it because most of these episodes... Um, it'll either be more, I think, about history or about the background of the creature or the ghost or whatever it may be. Um, in this particular case, though, this urban legend had a very obvious message of sexual violence with it. And that's the reason why in this episode we decided to dig pretty deep into that. So again, sorry, listeners, for this one being a pretty hard one to listen to. They're not always going to be like this. <laughs> We, we, we did try to keep it light with yours, at least. I we feel tried. like there's less, still less wiggle room with mine. Yeah. <laughs> Except yeah. for maybe when we get into the serial killers, we might be able to yeah. poke around yeah, a little bit. Yeah, maybe we can poke that. some fun at some serial killers. <laughs> we can poke some fun at some serial killers. I'm okay with that. Yeah. All right. So for statistics, just a heads up. It is difficult, or I should say it was difficult for me to find statistics for South Africa specifically. And I think a lot of that is a problem that's actually... Um, problem everywhere to be honest but it's so because of social stigma uh sexual crimes are severely underreported in south africa so i feel like that's one of the big reasons why it was hard to find some statistics is they just don't have statistics because it's not being reported so just a heads up uh the statistics i am giving you could actually be lower than the actuality of the situation so, it is estimated that 22.2% of children in school have experienced sexual violence in South Africa. According to Divi Bana from 2021, and I quote, Between April 2020 and July 2021, more than 160 cases of sexual misconduct perpetuated by male teachers were reported to the South African Council for Educators. Now, following this, I'd like to quote a few statistics, since those were mainly about children specifically, which I wanted to throw in there since Pinky Pinky seems to go after children more than adult women. 
I did also want to quickly go through some statistics about adult women, since this is definitely not a problem only for children in South Africa. So these following statistics come from the article Rape in South Africa, an Invisible Part of Apartheid's Legacy by Armstrong in 1994. But fortunately, this is an older source. It's from quite a few years ago, but like I said, I was having a really hard time finding statistics, so this was one of the only sources I was able to dig up that seemed to have some good statistics in it, but these are outdated, unfortunately. Another quick note, it's likely this was a peer-reviewed article, which is what I try to use when I'm pulling sources out of published journals, uh, just based off of the journal I got it from. However, I could not find evidence stating for sure it was peer-reviewed, so just a heads up. Again, take it with a grain of salt. Um, this could potentially not be peer-reviewed. In women's only groups in South Africa, reports have stated that one out of every four women have been raped, often at ages as early as 14. And I specifically said women's only groups because the article specifically said they struggled to get any data at all from law enforcement agencies or other organizations because there is such a... Uh, culture that prevents women from wanting to come forward that women's only groups was one of the only places to actually get decent information um, and data on this issue. The article also states that abduction of women and rape is common in South Africa because of the societal belief that lack of sex is bad for a man man's mental health and often it said when victims of rape are, when that comes to the surface, they're often excluded from family life and forced to go into prostitution to support themselves because they're basically ex from society because they were raped. So there's some more victim-blaming problems right there. Uh, it also says there's been greater support and prosecution for rapes of white women and not women of color in South Africa. So that's another big issue. Now, those were the statistics from South Africa. Sorry that I'm kind of throwing a lot of statistics at you, but I did one final little bout of statistics here. I did want to throw in statistics from America, since we're Americans, and it's, I think it's also nice to have something to compare to, since we are talking about uh, South Africa, which unfortunately, uh, like Katie said earlier, don't really want to call it a third world country, but may have some, some of those issues are still working out. Um, either due to politics or economic issues or what, whatever it may be. Um, but now thinking about America, U.S., again, I don't want people thinking this is not a problem here either because it definitely is. Now, this statistic comes specifically from RAIN, which stands for Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network. And this is a 2022 statistic. Every 68 seconds, an American is sexually assaulted. One out of every six American women has been the victim of an attempted or completed rape in her lifetime. 82% of all juvenile victims are female, and 90% of adult rape victims are female. So again, going back to what we were saying earlier, um, there are male victims of sexual assault, so please do not forget about them and don't leave them out because it does happen to men and boys as well. But uh, the reason we have the stereotypical victim being female is because statistically they generally are female. One last statistic, only 25 out of every 1,000 rapists will end up in prison. <laughs> I've said the word disheartening a lot today, unfortunately. <laughs> and if anything is really disheartening in all of this, I think that one really got me when I read that. The, and I mean, I... 
think it, it didn't have like a whole paragraph of disclaimers beneath that statistic. So I, I'm speaking from uh, me just guessing here. Let's just say from their website uh, necessarily when I say this, but I would guess that's because a lot of those rapes probably were not reported. Or if they were reported at all, it probably only came up because somebody went to the hospital or went to a doctor in need of medical help and not because they wanted to go straight to the police. Um, like I said, that's not on their website. That's just me <laughs> taking a guess there. Um, but I would have a feeling that's probably why the majority of rapists mm -hmm. do not go to prison. It's not necessarily because the law enforcement system doesn't work, though we could probably take a deep dive into that on another time. <laughs> about um, issues with that in regards to sexual violence and all that. Uh, and part of it's a cultural thing, too, not just in South Africa, but here oh, as yeah. well. <laughs> if something happens to you, there's multiple reasons. There's a wide array of reasons of why a woman or a young girl would not want to come forward. And so I have a feeling that's why the majority of rapists are not ending up in prison. It's not necessarily issues with the law enforcement system, per yeah. se, as, like, a sole cause or anything. I think a lot of it, too... <laughs> oh no i know there's issues for sure i just want to say i don't want to place all the blame on law enforcement no, part of it like, it's just there's people a little are not bit of an issue there for a but... multitude of reasons yeah. which i'm not gonna dig into right now <laughs> uh, since we already went to some yeah. dark places today we don't need to go there <laughs> oh. and like even following up with that like there are times when if it feels more comfortable to hear like something regarding like the process of what happens when you're sexually assaulted or even like the process of what goes down in kind of like an investigation standpoint or even like fun ones like how things decompose and you want to hear those types of topics let me know i can do research on those and instead of doing like a story coverage for my case i can actually go into a deep dive on those types of scenarios as well mm -hmm. yep definitely give us a shout if there's any particular topics for either one of us that you are really interested in and would love to hear about we're really excited to hear from you listeners so please feel free to reach out to us with any ideas for future episodes if you have any and before we wrap up here i did want to throw this out um if you are a victim of sexual violence or sexual assault Please know there are resources out there to help you. I, like I said, that statistic I just gave is very disheartening. And so I, I don't want that to discourage you from reaching out for help. And when I say reaching out for help, I do not mean calling the police. I mean reaching out to other resources that are out there to help you. You don't have to go to the police if you don't want to. You can still get help. Uh, so I'm just going to throw this out here before we wrap up. The National Sexual Assault Hotline can be reached by calling 800-656-4673 and again that is the national sexual assault hotline for the u.s and that is 800-656-4673 they also have an online hotline that i will drop the link uh in our show notes that if you feel more comfortable uh speaking through an online venue instead of over phone there is that as well and they have a mobile app with additional resources to check out for both educational purposes or if you need those resources please go get them like i said you don't have to report to law enforcement to get support Whew, that was a lot <laughs> i was about to say i'm like damn our poor viewers this week our poor listeners oh i'm sorry if i would have known this was heavy i would have taken up <laughs> Heads up, mine's like, gonna be heavy this week too. 
dark, do something a little bit lighter. Yeah. <laughs> oh no. Ooh, yeah. But, yeah. Definitely check out those resources, and I'm actually kind of happy that we did these two episodes together because they do have some relation to each other, especially like with missing unidentified, human trafficking, sex trafficking, that huge umbrella of things that can happen to a person. It's something that definitely needs to be said. It needs to be out there, and people need to know that like, even if you don't think this could happen to you, like I said in the previous episode, it can, and... Like, when it does, if it does, I hope it never does to you, it's shattering. It's mm-hmm. absolutely just mind-boggling and shattering. Yeah. So make sure you check out those resources. Make sure that you, if you need help get getting out of the situation, you call the sexual assault hotline. You call domestic violence hotlines. Like, do what you need to do to get out out of that situation because honestly as soon as you are out you are going to feel so much better and I can promise you that oh yeah I definitely double that (laughs) yeah so like we both said there are resources out there do check them out if you need them they're there for a reason and there are people out there who want to help you who want to support you and even if it feels like there's no way out of this there are ways out of it Sorry for these, Absolutely. Uh, being some heavy, heavy episode topics. Uh, I promise they're not all going to be this heavy, especially on my end of things. Most of the time, it's going to be a lot more lightweight on my end. <laughs> so please come back. Don't be scared away because this episode was particularly heavy. Like I said, they're not all going to be like this. Um, and I will try to give a little bit more notice in the future. So we can try to plan like accordingly like- and maybe have something a little bit more lightweight on Katie's end if mine's going to be particularly heavy. <laughs> Like, I feel like I owe them, like, an I Survived episode next week. (laughs) Yeah, thank you for sticking with us. We'll give you something great next week. Woo! (laughs) Oh, man. Oh, my God. Anyway, thank you guys so much for listening. If you haven't already, please go check out our socials. I'm making the Twitter and Instagram today, so they should be up by the time that this drops. Um, not entirely sure what their names are going to be because I haven't done it yet, we'll but as soon notes. as I do, we'll put them in the episode notes or I'll come back in like at some point, like right here. There we go. There's an open spot for me to like, just come back in and say them like how they are. <laughs> it's going to be so awkward sounding when I come back to edit. <laughs> I'll just do like a little ping pong. <laughs> These are their names. (laughs) Hi, this is Katie from the future. I like making things hard for myself when I edit, but I have our socials up now. So we are Haunting Cases Podcast over on Facebook. We are Haunting Cases on Twitter. We're Haunting Cases Podcast over on Instagram. And then if you want to find the rest of our social links, if you have anything new going on, we have a website link that should be in the bio for this episode. So go check it out. Thanks. I'll see you next week. Bye. If you want to email us with your stories, either being true crime, paranormal related, urban legend related, whichever you feel most necessary, want to give us some little tips or ask us to do something on the show, please make sure to head over and email us at hauntingcasespodcast at gmail.com. And be sure to subscribe and follow us on Spotify or wherever you get your pop. Can't talk today. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that was a podcast site. Let me Google it real quick.
subscribe and rate us on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And please be sure to spread the word and join us again next week. I promise it will not be this heavy on my end next week. <laughs> I hope so. Mine's already heavy to begin with. It's hard to get out of my spot. I'm like, I don't have much option here. I have so much wiggle room. <laughs> I'm like, I, I could do serial killer. That's about the only thing that I can give a little bit of with up until they start killing people. Yeah, then it gets pretty dark once they start killing people. Yeah. Ugh, oh, yeah. God. <laughs> but thank you again, listeners. Oh, my God. Thank you so much for joining us, and we will see you next week. Bye.